Hey everyone, welcome to Being Well. I'm Forrest Hansen. If you're new to the podcast, this is where we explore the practical science of personal growth. And if you've listened before, welcome back. I'm joined as usual by Dr. Rick Hansen. Rick is a clinical psychologist, a best-selling author, and he's also my dad. So dad, how are you doing today? I'm really good, Forrest, and I'm especially psyched to talk with a fellow podcaster and a seriously cool guy, Eric Zimmer. So I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, and this is actually a very cool episode of the podcast for me personally. Eric is the host of The One You Feed. And when I was considering starting a podcast of my own, his was one of the ones that I listened to really regularly. And it was also at the top of the various podcast charts a lot. So it was kind of this like aspirational thing for me where, you know, if I had a podcast like that, that's how I would know that I had really made it or something like that. So it's just really cool to have Eric on the show today. To let you know a little bit more about him, Eric is a behavior coach, an interfaith spiritual director, a writer, and as I said, the host of the One You Feed podcast. The podcast has over 500 episodes. It's received just about every award out there, and it's one of the most influential shows in the space. And I think that part of the reason for that is that the show is informed very heavily by Eric's personal history. At 24, Eric was homeless and addicted to heroin, and in the years since, he's been in recovery, built a meaningful and fulfilling life for himself, and has used, at least I think, many of the lessons from his own life to help many others do the same. So, Eric, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing very good. I am very excited to be here. I feel the same about being on this show and, you know, Rick was an early guest of ours and now, to mm. be, you know, it, it feels like it's a good moment for me too. So I'm, I'm happy. Are you nervous about the tables being turned? Actually, I'm not. No, I'm, I'm not. Well, we're going to have to work on that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, <laughs> I'm sure after a couple of questions, I will be. We're going to have to heat yeah, no. up the seat a little bit. You know, there's an inverted U-shaped relationship between anxiety and performance, right? Mm, mm -hmm. Low anxiety is low performance, really high anxiety is low performance, but there's that kind of sweet spot in the middle. So I don't know, Forrest, maybe we've got to dial it up a little bit. <laughs> well, I remember being on, uh, we were on Eric's show semi-recently, the one you feed, and Man, I felt like I was just, I, I just blacked out during that conversation. I was so not used to being the person being interviewed as opposed to the one doing the interviewing. And I just like had an out-of-body experience during the whole thing. So I, I hope it was a good conversation. I was barely there for most of it. <laughs> but kind of reflecting on that experience, you start every guest interview on your show and you asked us the same question with the parable of the two wolves, which is mm -hmm. this old teaching story where there's a grandparent talking to their grandchildren or grandchild, and the grandparent says, in life there are two wolves inside of us that are at battle. One is a good wolf, which represents things like kindness, bravery, and love, and one is a bad wolf, which represents things like greed, hatred, and fear. And the grandchild thinks for a second and asks which one wins, and the grandparent responds, the one you feed. And then you ask your guest, whoever they are, what does that parable mean to you? And so, Eric, you've now asked, I don't know, several hundred really smart, thoughtful people, the exact same question. It's almost like you've been performing a little study here for a number of years. And I'm wondering, in all of those answers, are there any major themes or ideas that have really stood out to you? One thing that I think is interesting that I've noticed change, and this gets a little bit to a conversation we were having off air just a little bit, is that as time has gone on, there has been a a lot more people saying, I don't like to divide things into good and bad. I welcome all emotions. There's been this softening away from 
the message of the parable. And I actually really agree. And I then sort of am like, but there's a point here, right? And I think the point to me of the parable is that our choices really matter, right? Mm -hmm. The choices we make about what we think, our choices that we make about what we do, about who we spend our time with, how we spend our time, all those things really matter. And we do have some degree of, of choice. The point that other people are making is that we don't want to cast off these parts of ourselves, the fear or the anger. We don't want to cast those out without exploring what is there for us to learn there. And so I think that's been the change that has happened in a lot of people's answers. But like anything, I see things on a continuum and sometimes we overcorrect to one direction or the other. And and I had this conversation, I think, with your dad the other day on our show about how mindfulness is really great. The, you know, the first step being awareness, awareness of what these emotions are, about what they have to teach us. But there is also a role for the cultivation of the states that we want. There is a place to say, yeah, I recognize that my anger might be a natural human emotion. I recognize, and, and all that is true. And I can work with it skillfully. You know, one of the things I've often said is that I, if I could, I would not use the word good and bad wolf. I would use the word yeah. skillful and unskillful wolf. Hmm. But that's a boring parable, right? Who, who wants to talk about a <laughs> skillful and unskillful wolf? Like it doesn't, doesn't, doesn't have the fairy tale ring to yeah. it, but it's actually kind of what we're really talking about. Yeah. Yeah. No, I like that distinction. I think that's really good. I remember being, again, when we were on the show and you asked me the question and this is, the part of the podcast that I remember, because I think I was not like fully blacked out at that point. <laughs> but um, all jokes aside, I think that what it brought up for me is the idea of like in internal family systems therapy, they have this idea of like no bad parts. Yeah. That comes from Richard Schwartz. It's actually the name. He has a book by the same name. And I remember having a reflection that it, it's something along the lines of like, there are no bad wolves. There are only good wolves that had bad things happen to them. And I think that we mm -hmm. can kind of like reflect on our own parts in the same way. And, and I think about a lot of the parts of, of my own nature that I pushed away for an extended period of time that I ended up years later, semi-recently in my life, having sort of a reconciliation with in a really positive way where I was able to incorporate those aspects back in ways that felt more healthy and like more productive and skillful as opposed to the way that they were initially showing up, which was more truly problematic in my life. Yeah. I mean, yeah. one of the things that I love about the parable is, A, I think it normalizes that we have these things in us. You know, mm -hmm. everybody does. And the way the parable's told, it sounds like it's close. It's not like the good wolf is running away with the, the victory, right? It sounds like this is actually a real in, in, engaged thing. And I also like that it doesn't actually say anything about cutting off the bad wolf, starving the bad wolf, putting the bad wolf in a cage. It just says, let's, you know, to me, it means let's give a little bit more attention to these qualities that we want to cultivate without making any parts of us bad. Yeah, how I've originally heard the parable was in the frame of the wolf of love and the wolf of hate. So not in a frame of good or bad. And to broaden it, thinking in terms of the wolf packs, Having been in the space for now easily 50 years of human potential, mindfulness, clinical psychology, Dharma practice in a Buddhist context and so forth, I'm really struck, I've been increasingly struck by this, which is there are many people who are crystal clear 
in their own homes or workspaces about certain values, that it's valuable to turn off the faucet when you leave the room, or it's valuable to pick up your shoes that are in the middle of the living room and put them in a closet. So they have values everywhere. And yet somehow when they're asked, well, how do you relate to your own mind? They kind of panic at the notion of having values applied to their own mental processes and to the traits that they are developing in themselves by the internalization of the states of experience of various kinds, thoughts and feelings, sensations, so forth, that they're having. There's this weird disconnect. Similarly, these are people who just take it for granted that it's appropriate to seek to act effectively in their home, to stack the dishes in a useful way, to take food that's starting to rot and you know help it out the door. And yet again, the notion of taking effective action inside their own mind seems to be categorically anathema for some reason. And I find all that really weird <laughs> and unfortunate because the same, to me, principles apply in inner as well as outer. Yeah, we can value certain things without hating or rejecting or exiling what we don't value so much. And we can also cultivate skillfulness inside our own minds and take effective action there. They're not categorically distinct from each other. I agree, yeah. It is this core idea that I think is, how do we cultivate certain values? Again, without doing the repression, without doing the spiritual bypass, without doing the, you know, the pushing these parts of us away, you know, how, how do we do that? And I think the answer to me is much like the answer is in very many places is there's a middle way here, right? There's a middle way between I castigate and push away any negative emotion I don't like versus I let whatever emotion comes up, just be the thing that runs the show. There's a middle place in between there that says, I recognize it. I learn what I can learn from it. I relate to myself compassionately and I work on what do I value? You know, like you said, what is the value that is, is inside my mind? And even when I sometimes can't deal with, I can't make certain emotions come and go. Like I've always thought of emotions as they don't have a very good lever on them, right? But thoughts have an easier lever. Because we can't, we can't control what arises in our thoughts, but we can work with what arises. And behavior is another lever that we can grab and pull. So I often think that I can't, I can't grab emotion directly. So these emotions are going to come up. And I mean, I've dealt with depression a lot. I, it's not something I know how to turn off. Mm-hmm. Right? I just can't go in there and be like, well, I don't want that. Goodbye. I can, by use, working more skillfully with thoughts and behaviors, have an impact on these things. And so I think that's what we're, we're talking about is letting emotion be to some degree because it, it arises, you know, kind of it's on its own, but cultivating our thoughts and our behavior a little more skillfully. I really wonder about that. I mean, I think about lots of research that talks about people becoming over time potentially more or less afflicted with depressive mood and less in particular. And beyond what is really baked into biology, let's say around depressed mood or bipolar, bipolar disorder, you know, there's a certain, there's a Mm -hmm. fundamental biological matter. Beyond that, uh, whether it's feelings of hurt or 
happiness or contentment or anxiety or underlying moods, I, gosh, I think there's a lot of evidence that people can nudge those over time, much as they can nudge their mental perspectives, their thoughts over time, and can also nudge behavioral habit patterns over time as well. Yeah, I, I guess the question would be, what is the mechanism that's doing the nudging? Is it by working with thoughts? Is it by working with behavior? Or is it, as you're saying, sort of directly working with the emotions themselves? Including which emotions do you feed? Right. This is something I've been really thinking about a lot recently. And maybe one way to talk about what I think you guys are both saying is the movement that we have from like awareness of the way we are into how do we change that in some way that we want to change it, right? Which is like the fundamental question that we really explore on our podcast. And one of the big questions, definitely, Eric, that you explore on yours as well. And the way that I've been thinking about it recently is that change happens in kind of like a three-stage process. In the first stage, you have insight. You have some awareness about what's going on inside of you or inside of the other person. Like, it's really hard to change if you don't have some level of self-awareness. And I think that many people have more self-awareness than they kind of give themselves credit for. If you ask somebody, like, hey, what's it like being you, to use a, a classic Rick therapeutic joining question, then they're often really able to take a step back and go, oh, I have these behaviors that aren't really serving me anymore, and oh, here are my strengths, and actually a lot of insight. And the problem most of the time is the movement into action, right? And so like, what gets us to move into action? And the more that I've sort of asked myself that question, the more that I've bumped into just the idea of acceptance. And acceptance mm. shows up in a lot of different ways. Because I think that like a lot of the time we have an insight, and then we ping pong about it classic example is with things like alcoholism and other forms of substance addiction where you ask somebody and in a moment of honesty with themselves, they say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. And then a week later, you ask them, oh, how's that going for you? And they go, well, you know, I'm not sure that I'm an alcoholic. That was just kind of a moment. And I really think that I can move into having a positive relationship with this thing where I can be more moderate in my consumption instead of going to zero. And and you just go through these cycles of like insight followed by not full acceptance. And so I wonder with like the changing the emotional aspect of it, if part of it is like fully accepting the emotion itself, just like as the truth of your experience before you're able to move into these forms of like the manipulation of it. So that was, that was a little bit of a monologue, but what do you guys think about that? Well, I could go down the rabbit hole of why people change and don't change for forever because I, I honestly feel like there is, at the end of the day for me, I feel like there's a really big mystery there. Mm. I've been around addiction communities for 25, 26 years yeah. and I know people who've recovered. I know people who have gotten sober and then gone back out. I know people who've died. I, I mean, I, I know the whole spectrum, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. And if there is a God and I got a chance to talk to God, after some fundamental questions like how did this all start and a few, a few other things, one of them would be like, why? Why is it that some of us get sober and others don't? What is it? Because some of us, people, you'll see people get sober with a bottom that I would look at and be like, that's not, who cares? No big deal. Can you say what you mean by bottom just for a general audience? Yeah, I mean, I, I guess a bottom would mean the, the consequences of your addiction. Yeah. And so you'll see people who their consequences, they got tired of being foggy in the morning and they, they go to 12 step programs and they, I mean, versus people who will ride this thing 
into mm-hmm. the gates of hell yeah. and never come out and die. And why? You know, I went to treatment with so many people who it appeared to me as near as I could tell were making all the efforts I was making and didn't make it. Now, we know that social support is a big thing. We know that the level, I mean, there's a lot of factors we can point to and go, yep, you know, the more traumatic experiences you've had, the more likely probably that you're going to have a harder time, right? And, you know, the less social support you have and the less family support and socioeconomic class and all these things, there are factors and, and some of it we can point to. But the fundamental mystery remains to me why, what it is that's enough to get somebody to really put in the effort to change and stay with it. And so I think, I think addiction is an interesting thing to look at because it's sort of a, it's the sort of challenges we're faced with smaller scale change, just sort of writ large. Yeah, you know, totally. we can kind of look at it and see like, well, yeah, you know, any kind of change has that, those qualities to it. And so I remain somewhat despite knowing a lot of the factors that go into it, I remain at bottom sort of a little bit mystified by what causes people to change. And I, and I think if you're in this space long enough, Rick, and I'd love to hear your experience with this, you know, you're in this space long enough working with people and changing whether it's addiction or their relationship or their health patterns or anything, is that, yeah, there, there's plenty of times that we are successful in helping people to change and see good things happen. And there's plenty of time where it just doesn't happen. And I think we can, we can sort of, we want the answer really clearly because we want to get better at what we're doing and we want to help more people. But I seem to just end up in, in mystery often with it. And, and I'd love to hear kind of what you guys think about that. Yeah, go ahead, Dan. One answer I think is partly found in studies on skillful action outside of mental health. Just mm-hmm. so for one, like the checklist manifesto, that book that talks about how useful it is to simply have your go-to actions and some sort of structure that you're clear about. So maybe your go-to is you say, okay, I'm just going to try this. When I wake up in the morning, the first three things I'm going to do before I get out of bed, let's say, is to tune into my body and kind of check in how I'm doing. Second, mobilize a feeling of getting on my own side, being an ally to myself. And third, commit to not drinking today, let's say, before I get out of bed. That's a little bit of a checklist. So the checklist idea. A second thing that definitely has been found in research on psychotherapy, what makes certain psychotherapists effective and, or, and others not, that's really independent even of the experience of the therapist, the education of the therapist, the modality the therapist uses. Across all of that, a major, major source of effectiveness is to evaluate continuously how it's going and iterate implementations based on what you're seeing, even independent of the relationship between the therapist and the the client. Which, as a just really, really quick point, is literally the number one way to get better at anything, which has been demonstrated by research, is continuous feedback. So being able to go through increasingly short cycles where there is a shorter and shorter gap between what you do and the feedback you receive about it is a great way to improve at any skill. 
Yeah, exactly right. And we're I'm very much a 49ers, San Francisco 49ers football fan. They have this rookie quarterback, <laughs> Brock Purdy, the last person oh, man, picked. I'm so glad in, this is showing up. In the draft, <laughs> Mr. Irrelevant was the tagline, of course, of the last person chosen typically. And yet this rookie's doing really well. And one thing about him, you could just hear him. And also it's in the frame of his excellent coach who's this way. He's iterating his learning curve you know, in, mm. in very fairly short cycles. So that might all sound so abstract. And yet in our personal life, for me, <laughs> one of the things that has really helped me is to connect my own self-interest, raw self-interest and feeling better rather than worse, right? To connect that raw self-interest to learning as rapidly as possible from both my mistakes and my successes. Mistakes, okay, what's the correction to put in next time? And, oh, this is working, let's keep it going. And that's been really helpful. I'll just say one more thing and then throw it back to you guys, both of you. With regard, including to your question or comment there, Eric, your observation about the mystery of it all, right? I think really centrally, your whole parable is at the heart of effective, lasting change for the better, which really gets at what are you feeding inside? Or the way I would slightly put it differently, but the same thing in a context of positive neuroplasticity, where do you dwell? Where do you rest your mind? Because where you rest your mind will increasingly rest inside you, hardwired physically into your own nervous system. Where do you dwell? And I think there is a volitional process here. There's, a, there's the role of the will in small ways where we watch ourselves dwelling in just beating ourselves up or resenting another person or fantasizing how great that, that beer will be. Oh, just one beer. Oh, just one, right? You know, it's like this sort of anticipatory delusion, even though we know as soon as we take the one beer, we're going to end up with four. Tell the truth, right? You want to disengage. You don't want to feed that wolf. And instead, are you okay already right now? Do you really need that beer? Is there gratitude right now? Is there a connection right now? Is there a growing friendship with you, Eric, between you and me right now, which I value, you know, based on recent contacts with each other? Oh, let's dwell there. And where we dwell becomes what dwells within us. And for me, that's kind of the central aspect. And then over time, those traits become stronger and stronger and stronger, and they become the gravitational force of your life. I think everything you said is, is absolutely spot on. I wonder about a question I often ask, and I've had this conversation with uh, a friend of yours and a guest of yours, Dr. Gabor Mate, right, who did a yeah. lot of work on trauma and addiction. And, and the question really gets to, do we all have the same level of choice? What level of choice is each person presented with? And I don't think we all do. I love that you're bringing this in, Eric. I totally agree with you. I mean, I can, I can reflect on it in my own life and then I can look, I can take it outwards, right? The amount of choice I had about whether to pick up a drug or a drink three days after I got sober in, in 1994 is radically different than the level of choice I face today. Now, again, externally, we could go, well, you had the same choice. You could either pick it up or not. But my internal state was so radically different. Today, I will, I mean, I, the story I've told recently on my show a couple of times is my mom fell about a year ago. 
and she's she's had multiple injuries, but she fell and I think this, I don't know which I can't remember which she broke this time. Let's say it's her her hip. And I went and picked up her. I took I had to take care of her. She was kind of you know couldn't do very much, and so I was getting her groceries. I was getting her prescriptions, and about two months into that, I went. You know what? I have been carrying OxyContin to her. Mm-hmm. Not only have I not taken it, it hasn't even occurred to me that this is something I should even think about. There was a point where I literally would have robbed you at gunpoint for that. Right? So the level that we can change, I think is, I, I, I love that story because I think it points to the fact that truly profound and transformational change is possible. Yeah. Had I tried that at three days sober, it would have been a complete disaster, you oh, know? Yeah. So, so I know that my level of choice is very different. And I've worked with coaching clients and I've worked with addicts and different people where I feel like their level of choice and my level of choice isn't the same, whether that be the amount of damage they've suffered from trauma, yeah. from various different things. And so that I, I think that's the it almost feels like that's the rolling of the dice that shows up in all these like here's the things we know research wise are more likely to lead to change there's a it's that variable in there that i think is still the thing that says why you know because we i know people whose trauma stories are will curdle your your blood and yet they are they are sober Mm-hmm. And then I know other people who, you know, I'm like, well, I, I don't know why you're an addict. We can't quite figure it out. You seem to have had a relatively decent and privileged life. Your trauma seems relatively minor. And yet you've been working to get sober for 20 years, <laughs> you know? And so I think when we talk about prescribing things to people, there's an element of where's the starting point for each person. And I think the idea that you're talking about, about iteration is really, really important. Because if you can iterate, you can start anywhere, right? Now, it may take you a lot longer to get to certain points, but if you are iterating, if you're getting better, and that's you know, one of my fundamental beliefs is that wherever we are, there is a way to move to a better place. I, I'm not going to say that you're going to, you know, you're going to lead a life of, you know, I'm reading an author right now, I won't disclose who, you know, it's all about, you know, Every moment of life should be bliss. You know, I'm like, this is nonsense, right? But I don't know how far people can go, but I do think that 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 iteration process. The other thing that I think is a real factor here that is worth calling out is shame. Because iteration means ability to look at Mm. your mistakes, admit your mistakes, and keep coming back to the source of help. And there are a lot of people where the shame is so deep that the mistake means I have to run and hide. And the courage it takes for me to crawl out of that hole is really hard. And so I, I think those, all these different factors kind of go into our ability to change. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying here, Eric, and I, I pretty much totally agree with you. And the shame aspect at the end, I think, is a huge part of this whole thing and is probably an under-discussed part of it because I think that that shame often keeps people on the path that they're on because the, the pain of admission you know, the admission of guilt for whatever past behavior that was problematic that is generating the shame almost forces somebody into deeper contact with that shame. And that can be a huge impediment to change. And then inside of all of this, I think that we're having almost a little bit of like a determinism conversation, like a little tidy bit. And and what I mean by that is there's, there's a question here, which is like, how much agency does a person have? 
You know, how much control do we have over our behavior? And when people are higher agency, like you're talking about being more at choice as you were able mm -hmm. to make these changes over time, you, you were able to come into more agency and you could apply this kind of more top-down behavior change-oriented stuff. To give an example here, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, is a radically effective intervention for a certain population. But it tends to be a bit less effective for people who, for example, had a lot of traumatic experiences early on in life. Because literally the cortical structures that are involved in that kind of top-down processing didn't have an opportunity to develop in the same way as somebody who's just like purely neurotypical did not have those painful experiences early on. So CBT tends to be a little bit less effective for those traumatized populations. So when you have people who are a little like lower agency in terms of their ability to like make those active choices, that doesn't mean that there aren't interventions, but it does mean that the interventions are different. Like this is why people, I'm forgetting the name for them, maybe you can help me out here, Eric, would this is why people effectively like go away when they're serious addicts and they enter a program where they are like forced to be separated from these choices for a while because they cannot make healthy choices for themselves. So maybe that's a way of thinking about it, that we become higher agency over time and we can take more of an active role. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes early on in the process, it's about removing choices from ourselves in ways large and small. And I'm wondering what you think about that. Well, it's interesting because I got sober twice, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, I had lots of many attempts, but I got sober at, at, at 24 from heroin addiction. And I went the full treatment, you know, like 45 days of treatment. I got out. I was out for a little while and then I went into a six month halfway house. Like I got mm -hmm. like, yeah. I, I wanted as many choices removed from me as possible. Right. I wanted to give myself the very best chance I could have. And I stayed sober about eight years and then a variety of different things happened. And I, I started drinking again. I didn't go back to heroin, but I you know was drinking and marijuana. And then I, I had to get sober from that too, because to me, it ended up being the same thing. I mean, the, the, the consequences were different because heroin is highly illegal and expensive and, you know, there's all kinds of problems with it. Whereas, you know, you can buy booze anywhere. Right. But inside I was every bit as sick. But the second time I didn't go to treatment and I just went to like an AA meeting each day. And I have to say there were a number of reasons. The second time was harder for me. Mm. And, and again, I think there's a, uh, there's a variety, there, there's a number of different reasons why it was harder, but one of them was simply the level of care and support I was getting. Yeah. In, in the first instance, literally all I had to do and all I did every day was focus on recovery, work, focus on healing, right? That was, that was the center and the core of my life. And I didn't have lots of other distractions. The other time I had a family. I had a job, I had a home to take. I mean, I had all these other things. So the amount of time that I was able to put on recovery was, was much smaller and my support was much smaller, right? I had an hour a day where I was surrounded by supportive people if I was lucky versus I've got 10 hours a day of around supportive people. Now, luckily that was enough for me, right? Luckily it was enough in, in this case, but it was really, really difficult. And I'm not saying the first time wasn't difficult, but the second time felt way harder. And that was one of the big reasons was simply the amount of support that I had. What do you think about all of this, dad? Because I know that much like me, you're, you're very pro agency, pro, we have a lot of volitional control, like believing in the power of the individual to affect their life in positive ways. And part of what we're talking about here is like situations where maybe you don't have so much volitional control. And 
I'm just wondering what your reflections are on all of this. I think it's a really important topic, and I'm reflecting on, in effect, the intimacy within individuals that 1% of you, let's say that, knows you should walk a higher road. And 99% of you is absolutely gravitationally pulled down that lower road. Kicking and screaming, yeah. Yeah, totally. 100%. Yeah. And I really appreciated what you said there, Eric, and pointed it out because I, I think back on Nancy Reagan and just say no and the rest of that. And there there are people who have the privilege, frankly, uh, often mm-hmm. socially constructed. They can, they can just say no. And they have a life that is not beating them up every day. They're not carrying around on their nervous system and their bodies, you know, a legacy of, of abuse, in, including related some to, oftentimes to a of growing up in poverty, targeted with racism, and all the rest of that. So absolutely. And yet, so I I think a really key catalytic process for people is when you're in that kind of sacred space in which 1% of you knows that X, you should just stop quarreling with your partner about that stupid stuff, or you should not be intense with your teenage kid. What can you do to feed that 1% so it becomes 2% over time, and then 3% and 4% so that eventually there comes a kind of tipping point when the center of gravity of you is rested in something else. And so that's where I think there is sacred choice that's available to most people. I think sometimes People are so flooded with pain or so compelled in the moment, like a drowning person, you know, who's so compelled in the moment to climb on top of somebody else to get to the air, right? Where there isn't that existential capacity. But for most of us, for most of us, when you're not running from your life or in the worst day of your life, there is that space inside your own mind. Even if you're going to give in to the 99% today, Still, there are little things you can do to feed that 1% so it grows gradually over time. And for me, that's where there's sacred opportunity. And what I'm saying is also very, very hopeful. It acknowledges that very often 99% of you wants to go down that other road, right? Because down that other road are some immediate rewards that you really want, right? And that 1% of you is, is all about delayed gratification and deferring gratification and all the rest of that. But really, you can help yourself gradually. You know, I think of the autobiography in five chapters, you know, the classic, uh, you could summarize it probably better than I could, Eric, but where basically you gradually help yourself want to go down a different road. And I really believe in that. So for me, that's the nuance. It acknowledges the force of the gravitational pull habit patterns, addictions, you know, the deep neurology of dopamine receptors in the brain, da-da-da-da, and that sacred opportunity to gradually nudge ourselves and to, to grow more and more of the motivation for the higher good within ourselves. Yeah, I love that idea, that sacred opportunity. And again, back to my, what I said earlier, is I think with a lot of this stuff, the, the truth is in the middle. We have a certain, everybody has a certain degree of agency and they have a certain degree of some, there's a little bit of determinism, right? Like I'm never going to be six feet tall. I mean, so there's different things that- (laughs) I'm not going to be Brock Purdy. There you go. (laughs) But I think that, you know, I often think about that 
when it comes, because I think sometimes our culture gets a little bit too like, you can be anything you want. You know, I'm yeah. like, well, let's settle Somewhere. down. Like take, yeah. it, take it down a notch. Like, no, no, not everybody can. But I think, you know, Carol Dweck's work on the growth mindset is where I like to look at, which is that, let's say I love basketball. I am never going to play in the NBA, right? Like it's just, it's just not going to happen, right? But that doesn't mean that I can't get way better at basketball. And I don't even know what the, my ceiling on basketball would be if I really devoted myself to it. And so I think that although we're talking about the ways in which we sometimes have determinism or we have agency and that we have less agency, it very rarely helps to think of ourselves as having less agency, mm, right? Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. it can be, I think it can be helpful in working with the shame a little bit to go, okay, I come by this honestly. Like there's a reason why I am, I am living and reacting the way I have up till now. Okay, it's not my fault but it is my responsibility now. And I do have agency, maybe not, not as much as other people in different situations, but I do have some and cultivating that agency and believing in that agency is really important. Cause if you don't, there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere to go if you don't think you can change. So in the addiction world that I grew up in for a long time, 12 step world, and I'm so glad it's diversified beyond that. Now, the idea was really about hitting a bottom. It was that consequences were what would get you sober. You have a bad enough consequences, you'll get sober. Well, sort of, in that there is truth in that. Consequences motivate us to make change. When things aren't going well, we're motivated to make a change. But my belief is that that has to be married with hope. That just consequence leads to despair. Yeah. You know, I had a period of time after I went to treatment, I did a, I did a, like a two week treatment and I got out and I stayed sober 30 days. This is before I got sober the first time. And I went back out and used, and th that was a really dangerous period for me because I thought I did what I did, everything I could do. I went to treatment. I did everything they said, and it didn't work for me. So I guess like they say, once an addict, always an addict, I'm going to die this way. That was a dangerous place, right? That was a very dangerous place. So, so consequences and enough, we, we also need the hope and the hope is that we can change. I think when those things come together, a very clear, what's happening in my life is not what I want. And again, we could apply this to addiction all the way down to my eating patterns aren't what I want them to be, sure. right? Yeah. I'm not getting what I want and I believe I can change. And I think often the way we believe we can change is we watch other people change, which speaks to the importance of community and all this. Totally. When those things come together, then I think that's the fertile soil that change can actually really occur in is, you know, we need multiple of those elements. We absolutely do have to believe in our agency to some degree. Otherwise, we're not going to put forth the effort. I forget what the quote is exactly, but there is a quote along the lines of determinism is scientifically interesting, but not very practically useful. And <laughs> that's how I tend to think about it myself. Like, it's very hard yeah. to argue against determinism scientifically, but like in my own life, if I just think, oh, it's all determined, what's the point? Then that's going to lead me down a certain kind of road in terms of my behavior. So I try to make a different choice when I'm given, when I'm given the option. Rick, I'm curious what you think about it's called different things, but it's the stages of change model, hmm. right? Which I imagine you're familiar with, right? Which basically says, 
you know, there, there are these different stages that we go through on our way to change. And, and we often think of change as being the action, but that there are stages before that. There's pre-contemplation, there's contemplation. And I think a little of this is what you were getting at when you said, well, 99% of me doesn't want to, but 1% of me does. Let me nurture that. And I think that, you know, in that model, they discuss really clear things that you can do in that pre-contemplation and contemplation stage. Stay in your stage, but do stage appropriate activities that increase your motivation, increase your belief in agency. I'm just kind of curious what you've thought of that model, because it's been around a while, and so have you. Um, (laughs) I couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. Wow, man. As old as the stones (laughs) over here. Good shot, bro. Boom. Thank you. Thank you. I'm familiar with what you're talking about. I wish I could uh, remember the name of the key person who's sort of involved in that, but stages of change and all that. I think that it, to some extent, it does describe a process and there are things in it that are really useful I, I think also from observation, there is sometimes mystery, especially around, for lack of a better term, sort of quantitative incremental struggle, often with plateauing, koosh, release, breakthrough, and then new equilibrium. Mm-hmm. And then and and what prompts that release, that breakthrough? It's still a mystery, really, and even in neuropsychology, like, what is it? But we've all experienced it, where we just let go of something, or we just don't care anymore about something that we cared about previously that got us in a lot of trouble, for example. So there's a mystery element. And then the last thing, very practically, because I find a lot of this really is, is aided by coming down to what's it like to be you, right? What's happening actually in your, whoever you are, your mind, what are you helping yourself to want that you don't currently want very much, but would be very good for you? That process to me is what we're really talking about here. How do you help yourself want certain things? And there's a lot of teaching, very practical, as you know, in early Buddhism about choosing the higher happiness. Wisdom is choosing mm-hmm. a greater happiness over a lesser one. You know, how do you help yourself want that? And I find that's very much the hinge of practice. How are you helping yourself these days? Oh, I'm not helping myself because I hate myself. Okay, how are you helping yourself to create more space between that self-hatred and your innermost being? Oh, I hate myself too much to even do that. Oh, okay, how might you be helping yourself these days to want to have a little more space? between you and that self-hatred in the future. You know, at some point, and, and I've been with people, I know you've been with them too, where at the bottom, they do not want to help themselves. And we could say, well, they don't have agency to help themselves. And I'm more hopeful than that. I think that's a choice. And the active, they are exercising agency to continue to want not to help themselves, right? And if they have the agency to want not to help themselves, they also have the agency over time to want to help themselves, or at least to want to help themselves, gradually want to help themselves. Yep. And you know, the difficulty with this though too, is that it really tends to, as Forrest was implying, it can awaken shame in people. And it's also this line of talk 
can be used by puritanical zealots to shame people for not doing X, Y, or Z. Behaving a certain kind of way, yeah. Yeah, as soon as you, so, you know, with, with power comes responsibility. My assertion is that other than in, you know, being completely overwhelmed with one thing or another, we really do have a power to help ourselves to want, to want, to want, at some level, <laughs> to want what's good for us, right? And because we have that power, we also have that existential responsibility. And that's, that's a tough thing to face, and yet I just think it's a fact. And if we didn't have that power, it would be a much more terrible thing than whatever the cost might be of accepting that responsibility. Yeah, I think there is that finding that right balance, and it's different for each individual that acknowledges all of this, that your circumstances and those being your genetics, the way you were raised, the traumas you've got, the social support you've got, the people you're around, you know, whether you work one job or four jobs, their circumstances have a very powerful impact. And there is a degree of agency in each of us, you know? And so I, I love your quote, Forrest, about, you know, determinism is really interesting, but not very mm -hmm. helpful. And I think that's, that's the case, you know, arguing for our own limitations is never beneficial, right? I do think allowing ourselves to find compassion towards ourselves for where we are and why we're there that's the helpful use of looking at circumstances to me is looking at them and going, okay, yes, I can, maybe I can let go of some of the shame mm -hmm. if I go, you know, I'm the way I was because I was deeply abused from two to seven. Like yeah. why, why, if I think you that's deeply, the secret sauce. Totally. Why, why wouldn't, why wouldn't, of, of course I'm struggling going through that. Yeah, I'm an addict. It makes total sense. Coping mechanism, perfect, good. If that helps lessen the shame, good. Wonderful. That's the proper use of it. But continuing to argue that I can't change because of that then is where that thing stops being useful and becomes a hindrance. That's yes. right. Yeah, totally, totally agree. And to kind of return to one of the things that I mentioned earlier about acceptance being this key part of the change process, there's a difference between acceptance and responsibility that I think gets really muddled for people sometimes because they think that like, oh, I accept that these things happen to me, therefore I am responsible for them. And that's just not the case. But sometimes acceptance of what happened in the past can move us into a feeling of greater responsibility or influence over what happens from now on in the future. And that's kind of like the secret to it, you know, accepting the conditions as they are and then taking responsibility for what happens from now on in whatever small way that you can do that, even if you are relatively like agency limited, as Rick was saying, you know, you can do the 1% movement. Yep. 1% to 2% is big change, you know, and, and sometimes yep. it's good to acknowledge that that is a 100% increase in your level of influence of, over something. And um, it's also easy to kind of downplay it. Yeah, or move from zero seconds between impulse and action to one second. Exactly, yes. Yeah, huge change and then move to two seconds. You're still gonna get drunk tonight, but you're gonna take two seconds yes. before you reach for that bottle. And then you're gonna take three seconds tomorrow, right? And it is, you're creating more, and you're helping yourself to want to create that space. Lately, I've, or lately today especially, I've been really preoccupied with this teaching from Suzuki Roshi, it's classic, you've heard it, that in the beginner's mind are many possibilities, in the expert's mind are few. 
And I think about that foreclosure of possibility broadly, not just with so-called experts, you know, who know everything. It's something like they know the price of everything, but the value of nothing. You know, that Mm -hmm. classic line, right? The characteristic really of what we're talking about is that in the mind of someone who feels compelled, right, to yell at their kid or get hammered again tonight, is that in their mind, there's no other possibility. Yeah. There's a sense of compulsion, of must. It's, it's preordained, yeah, totally. Yeah, of insistence. And I just think, wow, it's so important to give ourselves room to breathe around these things, just unpacking around it, slowing it down, seeing the larger context, because otherwise we get so stimulus-bound to that particular molecule that the brain craves or yep. behavior, right, that the brain is habitual about. Anyway, yeah, possibility. That's what we're really talking about. What promotes possibility at the individual locus of practice, to be sure. And then also we could, of course, talk about groups, as you said, sangha, gatherings, you know, fellow people on the path and 12-step programs, society altogether. What fosters wholesome possibilities and the capacity of individuals to make use of them? Yeah, as, as we're talking about this, it makes me think about the abstinence model of recovery. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. and I get why abstinence as a goal is really, really helpful because I've been in the trying to moderate phase and, and, yeah. and I also know the further away I am from my drink, the, the better. So I get why we set that as really important. What that doesn't do, though, is it doesn't allow us to recognize progress. Yeah. You're either zero or you're a hundred, right? It doesn't recognize like, oh, I had 30 days sober. Yeah, I went out and used again, but boy, I had 30 days. You know, one thing I do with certain people I know who are in addiction is I say, go get a jar and get marbles. And every day that you're sober, put a marble in. Yeah, You don't take it out when when you have a day that you're not sober. And over time, what they'll see is like, wow, there's a lot of sober days in there. I'm not perfect yet but there's a lot of sober days in there. It allows an increment, right? Us to increment. It allows us to see progress. It allows us to not be perfect. And I think that's one of the downsides to a model that says you're either 100% successful or you're 0% successful because it doesn't allow for that. It doesn't allow for that fact that, like you said, if I went two hours tonight before I drank when I normally do it after two minutes, there's progress there. I can build on that. Even though it's not where I want to be, it's not where I need to, you know, it's not ultimately, but it is, it is forward direction, forward yeah. progress. And we know, you know, in addition to believing in agency is really important in our ability to change, so is seeing progress. Yeah. Seeing progress, we go, okay, maybe I can do this. So I think that's, uh, you know, I often think about the, the abstinence model in that way, because that's where I came up, mm. 12-step program, you know, and it was like, mm. if you were sober, you were great. And if you weren't, it didn't matter, you know, like it didn't matter. You could have been sober two years. Well, you're just a drunk now because you took a drink. Well, mm. yeah, you drank, but it's not like those two years of knowledge and wisdom is, are vanished. Yeah. But that's the way it's treated. I want to ask you about something that I sort of stumbled onto in a talk I gave last night for my uh, sitting group online meditation program. So this is very fresh for me. And it's a very new kind of experience to kind of cut to the chase about it. And you can do it with me right now and anyone listening can do it. If you just sort of tune in to whatever your version is 
of an underlying upwelling in your in your being of awareness and I focused last night on kind of love of sort of a freely flowing lovingness broadly a warm heartedness a basic goodwill good intentions toward others and so if you imagine this upwellingness of kind of goodness of some various kinds in yourself and and imagine it like upwelling and spreading what I started to do was imagine that this innate goodness and lovingness was spreading through parts of myself that felt ashamed or were mean or were addictive. I had a grandfather who's an alcoholic. I have a brain that really likes those molecules. So I had to really watch that. And it was actually really powerful for me. I know you have a quite spiritual background. Eric, and I just kind of, and people don't have to relate to this spiritually, it's just more psychological actually, that this upwelling of goodness, of lovingness, of awareness is flowing through all parts of yourself, all the wolves, all the wolves are being washed by this upwelling in that, right? I don't know, for me, it, it really had a sweet impact and it's been quite healing actually. I want to run that by you both. I find practices like that, which we'll just call them psychological, spiritual practices like that, really interesting because there are times that I, I'll do an exercise like that and there's a really profound, like you're describing, something really profound happens, you know? And then there are other times I'll do the same exercise and I'll be like, nothing. Like yeah. it just didn't, you know? And so I, it, it's, you know, there are these moments where for whatever reason, there's a receptivity. And I don't, I don't know that's one that we I think we can cultivate it, but it, it seems to be, I don't love the term grace because it, it implies something I don't understand maybe, but there are a lot of times where that's where that sort of thing feels like grace to me. Like I was just given a gift here. I don't understand why, I don't understand how, and I think it's the old idea of like, well, you know, certain practices won't lead to enlightenment, but practice, you know, enlightenment is an accident, but practicing more often makes you accident prone, right? Like it's, I think it's the same thing. The more often I, <laughs> more often I open myself to practices that have the possibility of healing like that, the more often I'm likely to have those experiences and to be able to approach them as open-mindedly as I am capable of. And also recognizing that what worked for me today may not work for me tomorrow and something else that didn't used to work for me might work for me again, you know, with, with practice is to continue to approach that stuff in a really open-minded moment. And I love those moments where something happens, where there's a practice of imagining certain different forms of, of light or different types of emotions or feelings or, and something just beautiful emerges. So I'm, I think that's maybe why a lot of us do practice is because, you know, like you said, there's that, there's a, there, you know, there's a lot of plateau in spiritual practice. There's a lot of like, yeah, okay, kind of, you know, doing, doing what I got to do. And then there's these moments of like, whoa, like, oh, this is why I do this. For me, where I go to with a lot of this is it's a, it's a practice to an extent of self-compassion as a way to think about it. Hmm where you're having a feeling of positivity, support, kindness, innate goodness, pick your phrase, kind of seep 
into all of the the nooks and crannies of your being. Yeah. Including extending a lot of understanding toward those parts of yourself that you might have entered into a more conflict-heavy relationship with at the moment. The 99% of you that really doesn't want to change right now. The bad wolf, to go back to the parable at the beginning. And it's a way of seeing and offering some internal support to those parts that you might be a little reticent to give right now in the more cognitive parts of your experience. Because in those more cognitive parts, those problematic aspects of personality are the things that are really keeping you tied to the rock of various behaviors that you evaluate as like literally destroying your life in some cases. So it's really hard to extend a lot of compassion to them in this kind of cognitive position. But maybe it's possible to extend some warmth and compassion from this more spacious, almost spiritually informed position. So that's how I think I interpret it myself. And and I think that's a profoundly useful practice. Like, you know, I, I think that the more that I bounce around and like learn this material and I'm still relatively early in my in my development with it. I mean, we've been doing the podcast for five years now. And before then, of course, I was your kid. And so I bumped into a lot of these ideas. <laughs> and, you know, we had unique dinner table conversations growing up relative to probably 99% of the population. But still, I'm not formally trained in psychology or anything like that. But the more that I wander to a kind of third wave behavioral intervention-y stance, that kind of more acceptance and commitment therapy or IFS or DBT or these various modalities that are all about balancing self-acceptance with change and how it's it's through the kind of tension between these two aspects, between like the 99% and the 1% that we actually get better over time. And I think that that practice is a really beautiful way to extend some some compassion to the parts of ourselves that we might struggle to do that with. That's beautiful. Um, this natural wellspring that's innate does not want to get hammered, does not want to hurt anybody. I think a lot of practice is about both top-down and bottom-up. Mm. It's about deliberate regulation of ourselves. And there's a term in neuropsychology called the control of control. In other words, the development of you know, the executive functions top-down and, and the regulation of them and the directing of them. But maybe more and more, and the longer I do this, the more important I think it is to, in effect, start to experience and then surrender to innate goodness, the ongoing process of being that underlies all doing and is often obscured by it, and to give over to it increasingly and be carried along by it because it doesn't want to harm. I find for a lot of people who feel deeply ashamed, and I have a lot of history of, of inadequacy, feeling like defective, damaged, unwanted goods. And to realize that all along, there was this inherent purity, mm. inherent purity in the middle of it all, and, and underneath it all, there was undamaged, untouched, unstained, untainted by all the stuff that happened. Wow. And I say that as a guy who was not particularly traumatized or mistreated, mm. and I, I have found that this opening into natural goodness, innate goodness, is actually a deep healing for many people who have been really, really mistreated mm -hmm. and feel really ashamed. I've often heard people say, they talk about that innate goodness and that, that underlying that there's this purity and love. And, and the skeptic in me 
wants to go, you know, I don't know. Like, is it really, you know, look at the world, you know, it's people are, you know, it's, it's the old argument of like, are we born good? And then we go bad. Are we born bad? And then we, you know, and all I know is that my experience has been when I'm able through various means and, and different ways to pull a lot of the junk out of the way that what does seem to arise fairly clearly is love. Yeah, exactly. Is a basic goodness. You know, so even though the my intellectual aspect of that can would often, you know, depending on my mood, I might argue my experience has been, oh yeah, that's what arises. That's what comes up when the mental debris is swept aside to certain extent is just this openness, this kindness, this compassion, this joy, for lack of a better word, you know, that just, that does arise. And so, yeah, I, I agree too. And I think the more that I'm able to touch into that, it makes me think of something. So I had a really, you know, I've had several different experiences, but I had a really sort of overwhelming mystical experience. And this was not on drugs. This was just where I just had the classic mystical experience of just suddenly oneness with everything undivided and complete. And it, it, it was more than a second. It lasted for quite some time. And it, it did some really serious ego rearranging in me. Matter of fact, I, I changed in ways I've never gone back. That said, over time, those experiences sort of start to fade. And I was asking the spiritual teacher, Adi Ashanti, about this. And he said one of the most beautiful things I've ever heard. And he said, in essence, devote yourself to what remains of that. And that to me is really a beautiful idea, is that I don't have to be feeling that all the time. That if I can go, well, do I believe that what I saw then was real and true? And I do. So if I believe that is real and it is true, even though I'm not experiencing and I'm not feeling it, how would I then live if I believe that's true? And that has really pointed a way forward for me to take those really special moments and bring them into all the moments of my life. How would somebody who recognized his true oneness with everything behave, even if I'm not feeling it in the moment, right? Because the nature of feeling is it, it waxes and wanes. But that idea of devote yourself to what remains of it was just a beautiful teaching to me. That's really fantastic, Eric. And Thank you for sharing that story. It was very powerful for me personally. And I really appreciate just spending this time with you. It's been a really great conversation. I think that's a really good place to leave it. And thanks again for doing this today. Oh, thank you so much. Such a pleasure to talk with the two of you. I, I really enjoyed it every single time. So I hope we, we continue to have more of them. I really enjoyed today's conversation with Eric Zimmer, who is the host of the One You Feed podcast, in part because we explored a lot of topics that I've been really thinking about in my own life personally. Uh, this balance between what we have control over and what we truly don't, how we come to terms with our limitations, maybe the limitations that came about just as a consequence of our history, the time we were born into, things we truly have no influence over. And then the limitations that are driven, frankly, by our own behavior and our own choices in life and the ways in which we just went down one road over another many years ago and the ways that that has cascaded into the here and now. 
A major theme for the conversation emerged in the very first question I asked Eric, which was about the parable that he begins every episode of his podcast with. It's the parable of the two wolves. Uh, To say it really quickly, we have two wolves inside of us, a good wolf and a bad wolf. Which one wins? Well, it's the one you feed. And one of the comments that he made about all of the different answers that guests had given him over the years was that over time, there's been this movement toward more acceptance and inclusion of the quote-unquote bad wolf and a little bit of aversion toward the label of bad at all. Because to borrow a little bit from internal family systems, maybe there are no bad wolves. Maybe there are just good wolves that had bad things happen to them and are now behaving in inappropriate or unskillful ways. And we quickly turned the conversation toward the topic of addiction. And the question that drove a lot of the rest of the conversation was basically, why is it that some people are able to recover and other people aren't? What helps somebody move from being a a prisoner, really, to their biology, their tendencies, their impulses, whatever it is? And what supports them in moving away from that to having more and more volitional control over their lives? Because one of the things that we really landed on was that early on in the process, particularly for people who really struggle with addiction, but you can extend this out, I, I think it's a really good metaphor for most forms of behavior change, we often have very little volitional control early on. Somebody who is heavily addicted to a substance doesn't have a lot of volition over whether or not they use that substance. If the substance is around, they are going to use it. And this is why for many people, the key intervention is going away into a program where they simply do not have the choice to use the substance or not, because if given the choice, they're going to use. And that was one of the things that was really helpful for Eric individually. And then over time, assisted by all these other factors, a person is able to have more and more influence over their choices. And that got us into this whole conversation that we had about agency. How much agency do we have? How much influence do we really have over what we do? As you know, if you've listened to the podcast for a while, I am a big agency person. But there's also a balance there with understanding that we don't all have the same choices. The choices that are available to me in my life are extremely different from the choices that were available to Eric in his. And it's entirely possible that if you were somehow able to just like drop me into his life with all of my predetermined factors intact, like the nature of my biology, all of that stuff, I would have ended up making very similar choices to him, or at the very least would have made very different choices from the ones that I made in my life. And one of the things that came up for Rick several times throughout the conversation was the importance of giving yourself over to the 1% of you that knows really more than anything else what you should be doing right now. And that process isn't going to be perfect. It's just 1% of you. It's not going to drive all of your behavior. But there probably is a 1% that has a sense of what is truly best for you. So then how do you identify that 1% and how do you ally it increasingly over time? And one of the things that I really liked that we talked about was not being a prisoner to all or nothing solutions. Spending 30 seconds more thinking about whether or not you should grab the beer before you grab the beer is still an improvement over spending zero seconds thinking about it. It's not perfect. That's not what sobriety looks like if you end up drinking the beer but it's better than what you were doing before. And these incremental improvements, if we can iterate on them, which was another thing that we talked about during the conversation, are going to stack up for a person over time. 
As Eric said during the conversation, there's a practice where you can put a marble in a jar for every day that you're sober. And you don't take marbles out of the jar when you aren't sober. You still had those days. They still matter. If you go 30 days of sobriety and then you have a drink, is it perfect? No, but it's better than if you hadn't had those 30 days. And for most people, growth is not a linear process. You don't just wake up one day and solve all of your problems. That's not the way this stuff works. You get a little better, you get a little worse, you backslide, you hit a snag, you think everything is smooth sailing, and then all of a sudden the world collapses around you. And this isn't ideal, but it's all okay. That's the way that being human is. And if we're not able to acknowledge the growth that we do truly experience, it's very hard for us to get on our own side. And one of the things that we found toward the end of the conversation was how important it is to be able to extend a feeling of compassion and kindness and self-understanding toward all of our parts, even the ones that we are really frustrated with right now. Because meeting parts of ourselves where they're at is one of the things that allows us to accept them. And that acceptance is one of the things that then allows us to change. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation. I had a great time talking with Eric. Uh, If you like being well, you are probably already familiar with the One You Feed podcast, but if you haven't given it a listen, I would really recommend it. It was one of the ones, as I said, toward the beginning of the conversation that got me into podcasting in the first place. So it definitely has a kind of a special place in my heart. If you've been enjoying being well, we'd really appreciate it if you would take a moment to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening to it now on. And hey, you could even leave a rating, a positive review. That really helps us out. If you'd like to support us in other ways, you can find us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash beingwellpodcast. And for the cost of just a couple dollars a month, you can support the show and you'll get a bunch of bonuses in return. This includes things like expanded show notes, transcripts of the episodes, and ad-free versions of our episodes. Until next time, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon.